The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily express those held by this station or its advertisers and are strictly the opinions held by those contributing to the show. Welcome to the Eric Little High School Football Podcast, your home for news, discussion, and opinions about high school football in the Mid-Ohio Valley. And now, here's your host, Eric Little. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. Once again, I am the namesake. This is a podcast about high school football in the Mid-Ohio Valley, West Virginia and Ohio. We'll talk a little bit more about Ohio today, but more about Ohio in the next couple weeks as practices continue and open there. We have Tara Malone coming up later in the show, plus we'll look at the top five storylines leading into 2021. A whole lot to cover today, so let's get right into it. Fall sports practice is open in West Virginia as of Monday. Many teams took advantage of their flex days to add on to that and start practice in the final week of July. Others uh, were able to use the three-week period to get some seven-on-seven time in and to get some work in through football camps. And a lot of people have been busy since before Monday, but Monday was the official day of fall sports practice, the day that leads us into scrimmages and leads us into on-field action. Not a lot going on news and notes-wise other than that. I do want to touch on something we mentioned last week. We talked about the Capitol High School vacancy at head coach after John Carpenter left. Well, just as a show dropped, Mark Mason, who was the interim head coach there in the departure, in the wake of John Carpenter's departure, was named head coach officially just five days before the start of practice. He was approved last week by the Kanawha County Board of Education. He's been an assistant at Capitol since 1999. He held that title throughout the summer after the resignation of head coach John Carpenter, though he ended up being the interim coach. During the three-week period, they say they got good participation, although Capitol did not have the kind of record that they would want to have had last year. They just got three games and they finished 1-2 and two and played two fewer games than every other class AAA school, missing out on the playoffs and having a losing season. Not the way they wanted things to end, but I know they're excited to get up and running again and, and hopeful for better things because they know that it's about more than football at Capitol High School. Of course, after a COVID season last year that saw Kanawha County not get to play until October, and then, of course, the season end early because of positive cases, they had to deal with the fatal shooting of K.J. Taylor, who was killed April 7th in Charleston. That is something that impacted the Capitol High School family very firmly there. So they're trying to get over a lot of trauma in the last year. Mark Mason hopes to step up and be the guy to lead that program through. I know this year they're going to play Parkersburg South right from the jump at Laidley Field. That's going to be an interesting ball game there. They'll host South Charleston after that. So they start with two straight home games before they visit Stadium Field and Parkersburg. And South and PHS, of course, given that they're AAA, the only two local schools that will see Capitol this year. But Capitol... Capital will see those schools in two of the first three weeks. How about this for Capital? They're going to come off of a rough year last year where they only played three games. They'll have seven home games this season. Not a bad way to start for Mark Mason. So if that team can find some team unity and they can reunite under the staff that basically is the same as when John Carpenter was there just under a new person, that could be a sneaky good playoff team. They got a shot if they get some breaks this year to go into the top eight. Also, the SSAC released their guidelines for fall sports as they pertain to COVID. And they've been doing this at rules clinics through the area. In late July, they had a series of rules clinics throughout the state, and the message from the SSAC this year is that vaccinations are key to preventing student-athletes from quarantining, because if you're vaccinated, you will not have to quarantine as a student-athlete. We hope to get Wayne Ryan from the WVSSAC on this program later on. He's in charge of high school football, and he's also the guy that we go to for changes in the rules and regulations. So always a good guy to talk to. Uh, the assistant executive director of the WVSSAC, always a good guy to talk to 
when it comes to stuff like this. We hope to get them on either next week or the week after. But either way, vaccinations are a key to preventing student athletes from quarantining. And that's what they're spreading this year at the rules clinics. They're sharing that message that if you are vaccinated, you will not have to miss playing time. That was something that happened last year. Athletes had to miss playing time if they got contact traced to a positive case. And so far, that's the messaging from the SSAC indicates that that will not be the case. And that's something that was not in place last year, although last school year, you were not able to get the vaccine unless you were, I believe, 17 and up. Another change this year, if a school cancels a game because of COVID-19 and the opposing school doesn't find an alternate opponent or schedule a makeup date, then the school that cancels will have to forfeit. So if you've got a highly vaccinated roster and you're less susceptible to having to forfeit games, that's going to put you at an advantage to a school that does not have a highly vaccinated roster. And remember, the COVID-19 vaccine is available to all people age 12 and up. So that is right in that range of high school football players. Every player conceivably has the opportunity to get the COVID-19 vaccine. That is how the SSAC is using vaccinations and working with vaccinations and dealing with that in terms of being able to play games and making the rules and regulations in a post-pandemic scenario. Of course, we're not post-pandemic yet, but we're working toward post-pandemic. We'll talk much more about the SSAC regulations here as we pivot to our segment called Between the Hash marks. Again, as we said last week, Between the Hash Marks is a new segment we'll have on the show this week where we take a deeper look at an issue in high school football. Some weeks it'll be an interview, some weeks it'll be a deeper dive into a news item, and this week we'll take a deeper dive into the COVID-19 guidelines released by the WVSSAC. A couple of pieces of criticism, and I've been really shy about criticizing the WVSSAC during COVID. They've had impossible work to do and a large number of people to please, and their work went a lot longer into the summer than it normally does. Normally, they have the championships tied up by early June. Baseball stretch into late June this year. There's the dead week over the 4th of July where no activity happens. Practices, weightlifting, anything in high school sports. And then after July you have the summer period and they're getting ready for fall sports. So not much of a break for anybody involved in high school sports this year, but definitely not much of a break for the WVSSAC. So I'm hesitant to criticize for that reason, but here are a couple things. Why not release these protocols formally? Make a big deal of it. Put that on your website. Put that on your Facebook page or social media. I have not seen them on their social media. They advertise for the rules clinics on their Facebook page, but these protocols would be nice to have on one sheet. That I don't believe has been done. Another thing, why not release them in mid-July instead of having them bleed out at these rules clinics in late July? If you release them in mid-July, and we all know and it's statewide news, then that way you have time for people to get vaccinated that want to get vaccinated. Of course, the Johnson & Johnson's a one-shot deal, but even then, it's two weeks before you're considered fully vaccinated, two weeks from your final shot before you're considered fully vaccinated. So if you're Moderna or Pfizer, it's a six to seven-week process before you're considered fully vaccinated. So if you release these in mid-summer, I know that's a quick turnaround based on what you just finished up, but if you release some of these guidelines in mid-summer, then that gives teams in all sports a lot more time to get vaccinated. Of course, as we deal with high school football, that starts uh, the weekend of August 27th in this state. But the weeks leading up to that, there'll be volleyball, soccer, and golf events that take place and line that calendar. And that's going to start here in a couple weeks. So those are athletes that would potentially have to be quarantined and miss time if they come down with the coronavirus. So if you release these earlier, that is able to protect more people and give more people time to get those vaccines and get those shots. Here is an issue. Will young people 
get vaccinated, even if that is an unpopular concept at home. I touched on this a little bit last week, but I don't think I went in depth. A lot of parents don't always think their kids listen to what they're saying, but is your kid modeling your feelings on politics, on the world, on the virus? If so, maybe they're listening in ways that you don't realize. And if that message at the dinner table is anti-vax, anti-COVID, why would that young person think anything differently? If that's an unpopular message at home, that's going to be a tough sell. Or are there going to be young people that rebel? Because again, you're 12 and up, you can go get it. You can get yourself to high school football practice. You can get yourself to a vaccine clinic. Uh, You can go to Walmart. You can go to any pharmacy and get vaccinated nowadays. So young people almost look at that like getting a tattoo or a piercing? Will they be rebellious against their parents who are anti-vax and go get the vaccine anyway if that's what's best for their team? I don't know. Another problem in this is that not all coaches are on board with the vaccine themselves. So if leadership is poor up top at the school level, how do you get your kids vaccinated? If a lot of coaches haven't bought into the vaccine, a lot of coaches are anti-vax and maybe not spreading that message, but they're also not getting a pro-vaccination message out there either and hurting that way. If that leadership is poor at home and it's poor in the locker room, you're not going to get kids vaccinated because, again, they're making that decision with help. Of course, as we said earlier, if you're forced to cancel and the team that you've canceled on does not find a makeup date to reschedule with you or someone else, you could be forced to forfeit. And that's a harder line than the SSAC was willing to draw last year until the playoffs. We'll see how they get this year. There were a lot of no contests issued last year, but will they stick to that line when the rubber hits the road? We're going to find out in a few weeks. I would be interested to know vaccination rates among some of these teams and if they're anywhere near what they are at higher levels. And of course, at higher levels, you're dealing with adults when it comes to college and the NFL, whereas they have 100% full approval and permission to make that decision on their own. A little tougher for a 14-year-old maybe to get to a vaccine clinic. If you can't drive, if you're in a rural area, that's not something you can easily do. So you're going to need an adult to help you get there, even if that's a decision you're able to make yourself. So it's a little harder to get that team to a fully vaccinated rate or even a partially vaccinated rate. But either way, it'll be interesting to see if the WVSSAC sticks to that harder line as it comes to fall sports, because fall sports will set the tone regardless of what happens in the pandemic. Fall sports will set the tone for how sports play out in West Virginia and really a lot of other places for the rest of the year. Stay connected with us on Facebook, like our page, the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. While you're there, feel free to share your comments or questions. Eric will get to those on a future edition of the show. We'll spend the rest of our show today talking about the top five storylines leading into 2021. And of course, beyond the top five deserving special mention is COVID and its impacts. Now, when I was a college student, I remember when it was Playboy would come out with the top party school rankings and WV would be at the top of the list and one year they weren't. And Playboy said, well, they deserve special recognition because you can't rank professionals with amateurs or something like that. And it was huge in Morgantown and big at WVU. Well, this is how I feel about COVID. You can't rank it in the top five because it deserves its own special class. We don't know the impacts of COVID this year. Will there be kids quarantined, teams quarantined? Will there be teams that aren't vaccinated a whole lot be put at a disadvantage versus teams that are? Will this be an urban-rural thing where schools in rural areas have a lower number of vaccinated players and thus are at a disadvantage versus kids in a more urban setting. How does it play out? What are the impacts? And how do the regulations go when it comes to COVID this year based on what we expect, based on how we've heard they'll go? So that remains to be seen, but that is the overarching story of the entire year. So it won't be ranked in my top five. Later 
Later on, I will talk with Taryn Malone, our statewide correspondent, and he and I will share thoughts on this top five, and, and he'll have some thoughts on his own top five. But either way, this is my top five in terms of the top five storylines leading into 2021. In the early 90s, Johnny Carson announced he was going to step down after a long run as host of The Tonight Show. And some of you were alive to remember this. I wasn't, but I've read up on it over the years. It really came down to a battle between Jay Leno and David Letterman as to who was going to get the job hosting The Tonight Show. And it ended up going, of course, to Jay Leno, and he hosted that show for a long time, gave it up to Conan, and then took it back and hosted it for some more years. Letterman did well for himself, went on to host his own show on CBS. But at the time that they had first announced that Jay Leno was going to be the guy, there were a lot of people that were upset about that because they thought Letterman was passed over. And Letterman, truth be told, was probably Johnny Carson's favorite to get the gig. So Carson had Letterman on The Tonight Show not long after that news was announced. And after some laughs at the beginning, Johnny Carson asked this question of David Letterman. Why don't I just start off with a, uh, with, with a question here? Just, uh, <laughs> just how pissed off are you? Again, that's Johnny Carson from The Tonight Show. I don't own clips to that. Carson Estate, please don't come after me. I don't own the rights to that. I'm just borrowing it because I want to prove a point. That is going to be a key question, uh, and this is number one on my list of top five storylines. How mad are some of these teams? Ritchie County, a team that had a very good season last year, school record in terms of wins, but was denied the chance to play for a state championship against their next-door neighbor because of COVID metrics. PHS and Williamstown got playoff spots, and PHS did so with an exciting quarterback we'll talk about in just a moment, Williamstown and Chris Beck's first year. They didn't get to play in the playoffs because of the COVID metrics. How mad are those teams? And how much is that still a motivating factor? Because it can go one of two ways. That can be something that festers. It can be an open wound. It can be something that leads to resentment. Or it can be something that's a motivator, makes you work hard, and maybe motivates teams to get vaccinated. Maybe motivates teams to try to do the right things and to try to stay healthy so that they can play and have the opportunities that maybe they didn't get last year because we didn't have these things last year. So how mad are some of these teams and how do they use that? How do they funnel that? And who are they mad at? Does a team like like Ritchie County or Williamstown take it out on St. Mary's because they had chances that they didn't have. Does a team like PHS go through Class AAA and just run roughshod on people because they want to make a statement this year? I don't know. Do they take it out in other ways? So how mad are some of these teams and how can they channel that anger? Speaking of PHS, Bryson Singer, how far can he take the Big Reds? We've seen him for a couple years now, a superior athlete. He's getting looks at the Division One level. So how far can he take the Big Reds is step one with Bryson Singer. And the other storyline is where does he go to school? I'm sure there will be, there will probably already is a recruitment battle. As of this taping, he has not committed. He's been offered a lot of places, including some D1 offers. And this is another thing that needs to come up on this podcast for a lot of cash fans. The player is not always smart to take the highest level offer that they receive. Sometimes there's a better fit at a D2 or a D3 for that player, and that works the best. That's closest to home. There are other factors involved, like what do you want to study in school? Are you someone that's going to want to be away from your family? Are you someone that's going to want family to be able to come to your games? Things like that. Life situation, home situation, relationship situations. Because there are some of these people that, believe it or not, are dating the person that they're going to marry and would be wise to marry and be with and have a future with. 
they got that to consider too for some of these young men. But if you're Bryson Singer, where does he go to school? When does he make the decision? Does it bleed into the season? Does that come after the season? And how far can he take the Big Reds this year? He's not the only talented player they've got, but he's certainly the guy that is going to be that bellwether for how things are at Parkersburg High School. Let's get back to the LKC. There will be a battle royale for LKC supremacy. This is number three on my list. Ritchie County, can they build on last year? Given that they take that anger over not having the chance to play for state title. Can they build on last year and take the next step? Because they're going to have LKC Player of the Year Gus Morrison returning, quarterback Ethan Hot, who unbelievably will only be a junior. He started as a freshman, so he's had two outstanding seasons, including as a sophomore where he led the Rebels to the state finals. By the end of the year, that was Hot as a weapon that could win games. We didn't see that from him in the first year and really the first half of last year, but by the end of the season, he was a weapon that could step up and win games, and they might need him to do that this year. Line play will be a huge issue this year for the Ritchie County Rebels. Can that unit be cohesive? Will they run block? Who goes back there? Is it Morrison in the backfield? Do they put him out at the slot? Do they use him as a hybrid? Can you protect Houghton Morrison? And can those guys build on what they did last year? For St. Mary's, Brennan Boron out at quarterback, Luke Powell in, the guy that's presumptive favorite to start there. Can the rest of that team show up? Can the rest of the defense show up? They had heavy losses to graduation, notably on defense. They've still got some returners, so there are some scheme differences they're looking at, some things they're trying to figure out what they're going to do up front. St. Mary's has some issues to work out when trying to figure out what kind of team they're going to be from what we've heard. But the big change is going to be a quarterback. That's the one that's going to affect that entire offense and how it goes, Luke Powell is going to have the weight of that team on his shoulders, or at least feel that early on, maybe in a way that Ethan Hot did not at Ritchie County. So we'll have to see how that shakes out in the preseason. And for Williamstown, what happens with Chris Beck's squad in year two? Uh, they earned a playoff berth, but Chris Beck has not been able to coach in a playoff game. What does that team do? Where do they go? What's the next step for the Yellow Jackets? So LKC supremacy largely looks to be decided between those three teams, but is there a sleeper in in the mix? Does someone step up? Does someone in those three schools, Richie, St. Mary's, or Williamstown, do they underachieve somehow? And if so, how? What happens? So there's a lot to play out there, but those are the three front runners for LKC supremacy and in a lot of ways, Class A supremacy. If the season ends and those three schools are all within the top five and top five seeds, I don't think you're going to be surprised. And the only thing that would keep them all out of the top five would be if they beat up on one another. I think all three of those schools will be in the Metro News power rankings to start the season and possibly to end the regular season. Uh, whether or not they'll be in the SSAC top eight, that remains to be seen. But they all three, depending on how a bracket would play out, if you were to tell me those three were going to be three of the four semifinalists in Class A, I wouldn't be surprised unless they knock each other out earlier. They're all quality teams this year. They're quality programs. Let's step into Ohio for a moment. How do the playoff berths from last year and some success in the playoffs boost schools like Marietta and Frontier? Frontier is a school that had not won a playoff game in school history. But everybody got in last year after the first, I want to say, five or six weeks of the season. If you wanted in, you got in, and they played the playoffs from week seven on, and they seeded everybody. That led to a lot of schools winning first playoff games or making first playoff appearances. All you had to do was opt in. Many did, and if they got knocked out, they can play another game or two after that and get to ten. And that's the way a lot of schools did it. They got to their playoffs, and then once they got done with their playoffs, in some cases, they opted to have a final game as a senior night, and there it is. Uh, 
as long as you got 10 games in. It was a bit of a deconstructed season, a little goofy for some, but it worked and we got 10 games for the schools that wanted it in Ohio. But what that meant is that a team like Frontier got a win in the playoffs, so they know what that tastes like. They have that taste of victory. Where does that program go from there? They have some reloading to do, but can they build from that and parlay that success into success on the field this season? What about a school like Marietta? Jason Chubb's bunch has always been a step away, a player away from this, a player away from that. Uh, a lot of four and six, five and five campaigns over there. They got into the playoffs. It was the first time in a while they've been to the playoffs. And though they lost, they knew that coming into that season, they had already accomplished a team goal and they were building toward that. So can they continue building and where does that building go this year? A school like River, who's had playoff success every so often, they have their cycles that, that come and go. Where do they go next with another playoff berth? And do they find that there are a lot of teams on their schedule this year that have more confidence because of their own playoff appearances last year? So how does Ohio's change in the schedule for 2020, uh, how does that affect those schools that did make the playoffs and those schools that are perennial playoff teams who will now have to face a bunch of teams that can say, oh, we went to the playoffs last year. Well, so do we. Well, so do we. How does that affect the pecking order in Ohio? And finally, Parkersburg South. They were an enigma last year. They went from 11 wins in 2019 to a 1-7 season in a somewhat abbreviated and abridged 2020. What happens now? They graduated a lot of seniors. Sam Schuler out of quarterback. Devin Gaines out of running back. Gaines also played linebacker. Schuler ended up playing linebacker by the end of the year. Uh, those guys dealt with some injury issues last year, particularly Gaines, and they had some line inconsistency at Parkersburg South. So one of the things that they've emphasized with head coach Nathan Tanner this year is getting into the weight room. They got into the weight room as soon as they could in January. Uh, they could have played beyond the eight games they played. They had a COVID outbreak that led to the cancellation of the South PHS game. But by rule, if they wanted to, they could have played nine, ten games in action that would have gone concurrent to the playoffs. COVID was getting worse throughout the state, and eventually they decided to shut it down largely because they were looking toward 2021 already. And so they got into the weight room in January. They were hitting it hard. They were bulking up. They are feeding their players peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and chocolate milk and then having them work out. And that was adding the protein they needed to power workouts and to fuel workouts. Guys got stronger. Guys got more confident. And that team was able to get together in the locker room and have team activities and team build in a way they didn't last year. And that's one of Tanner's strengths as a head coach for Parkersburg South is building camaraderie. And when you're not able to get guys together, you're not able to build camaraderie. And for him, that's like trying to operate with one arm tied behind his back. And it was for everybody. It was difficult for everybody. But that is particularly where he thrives and where he lives. And when you took that away from him, you took away one of his biggest assets and biggest tools that he's able to use to reach young players. So again, where does South go? They lost a lot last year. They're definitely not the 11-win team that they were in 2019. It's at the very least an entirely different class, almost an entirely different class of individuals from that team. And they're not the one-win team from 2020. I think this is a team that's going to surprise some people. This is a playoff team. And I'm really not going out much of a limb to say that because there are about 30 teams in class AAA in 16 spots. So just about half the teams are going to get in. But you get in in class AAA with a 5-5 five and five record or a 4-6 and six record, there are five wins at least on this Parkersburg South schedule. There are possibly six. I think a 6-4 and four season will be a successful season on the south side. Anything more than that might be gravy. They're going to have a new running back. What do they do with Cyrus Traw? He was used as a slot receiver last year. Can they keep him healthy? And do they put him in the backfield? Do they use him as a bit of a Gus Morrison type? Where they throw to him and they run with him? Who knows what happens with Traw? We'll have to see as the season plays out. 
Those are the questions. And, and, and has that line congealed? Have they built up the strength and the bulk and the durability they need to succeed? That is what makes that an interesting question mark, and we'll see how they progress throughout the season. This is not all that far, by the way, from my list of storylines going into 2021 that I made at the end of last year, one of the last shows of the year. But again, how mad are some of these teams and how motivated will they be? How far can Bryson Singer take PHS? Who wins the three-way battle of LKC supremacy? How does the 2020 Ohio playoff structure affect all the teams over there? And what does Parkersburg South do to bounce back from a one-win season in 2020? Where's the ceiling for that team conceivably in 2021? We're joined once again by our statewide correspondent, Taryn Malone. This is the first time I've been able to talk to Taryn on the program. Taryn, glad to have you with us this week. Thanks for having me. It's always a, a great honor and privilege to be with you here on the program. I've just shared my top five storylines leading into 2021, and I talked about those with you before we went on the air today. LKC supremacy is one that will be largely decided by the three-headed monster of Ritchie County, St. Mary's, and Williamstown, and I wanted to let you chime in on that. Uh, What are you seeing from those LKC schools early on, and what are your thoughts on whether or not those three will be the three to beat in the LK? Well, the LKC is definitely a strong conference in in the Ohio Valley and all across the state. Um, I do believe possibly one or maybe even two of those programs can make it uh, to the state semifinals, the state uh, finals this year. Those LKC programs have been insane over the past couple years. You look at the Super 6 in most recent years and over the past 20 years, even the past two decades, there has been multiple Ohio Valley teams up at the Super 6. I think the last time that that has happened where there hasn't been an Ohio Valley team was back in 2002. Uh, Moorfield was up at the island with another opposing team, but it's just been dominated by the LKC and the Ohio Valley. So that's just something that we got to keep an eye on going into this season, especially with all three of those programs that we're thinking about, Ritchie County, St. Mary's, and Williamstown, all three of those programs have been dominant over the past couple of seasons. So Taryn, I was sharing with you my top five, and I know you have a top five as well. What are the storylines you're going to be looking for as we head into the 2021 season? Well, my first uh, storyline that I've been keeping an eye on mostly is the coaching carousel that we've mentioned a dozen times before. Just recently, longtime assistant head er, assistant coach at Capital, Mark Mason, was just named Capital's head coach last Wednesday whenever we released um, our first episode of the podcast. My second one uh, to keep an eye on, can schools in Class Single A produce larger numbers in their football programs? We've seen over the past couple of years, some programs in Single A has been just seeing a decrease in their rosters and we don't know if it's COVID related because this has been going on for two years now and parents don't want their kids to play or if this is just a lack of interest in the student body that's in those high schools so that's something that we've got to keep an eye on in the next couple years to see if we can keep these single A programs up and running and then my third note to keep an eye on. Joe Bricado mentioned this last night on the City Net State White Sports Line. Teams all across the state haven't played full JV seasons last year. So coaches are looking personnel-wise and they are uncertain who they would be starting this season just because of the lucky games they had a year ago. Uh, my fourth note, Martinsburg. Can they bounce back? Spring Valley upset Martinsburg last season where the Bulldogs were on a 50-plus game win streak. Can the Bulldogs find their way back to the island this season, or will there be a new face at Wheeling Island? And then my fifth and final note, Wheeling Central having only two in-state opponents in Weir and Man, and will that help them, or will that hurt them 
in the long run whenever they have the playoff points uh, add up and also the bonus points as well. You bring up some really interesting storylines. want to go back and touch on a couple of those. That's a good point that Joe makes with player development as far as the JV schedule. It's going to put a lot of pressure on these coaching staffs early on, and particularly in the summer period we've just had and in the next couple weeks, to evaluate the talent they have. Do you think that will place some more importance on the scrimmages that we'll see here in a couple weeks? Most definitely. Most definitely, Eric. And the reason I say that is just because these kids haven't seen the field for a while just because of the restrictions and guidelines. And personnel-wise, every everybody is going to have a chip on their shoulder. They want, they want to play their season this year, a full season, unlike a year ago. I think scrimmages are going to be really important whenever they come up on the 14th and 20th. Of course, Wheeling Central is a team that they go through cycles, and it's not always a choice as to how many West Virginia games they play. Sometimes there just aren't people that will play them in the state. They were a little bit pinned in last year with COVID. You almost had to play them, and they, they were an option that was certainly on the table. But again, they're in a cycle where they're not playing a lot of West Virginia schools. Could greatly reduce the number of wins they have by the end of the year. Yeah, I, I think Wheeling Central, they've from what I've seen over the past couple of weeks, they've been looking for another game on their schedule this season. So taking a look at Wheeling Central, I don't know if this will help them or hurt them in the long run. I do believe, however, that they're a perennial power program. No matter how they find their way into the playoffs, they can make it and make a deep run. Mike Young is undefeated at the island, Eric. So that's just another key note that we've got to keep at the back of our heads. But Wheeling Central has definitely got a way to make it to the playoffs this year. The only question is, will they compete on Friday, Saturday nights whenever they compete with these in-state and out-of-state opponents? That's a great point you bring up. And I know I'll be out to some of the camps next week. You've already made it out to some of these preseason camps and and practices. What are you seeing numbers-wise in this area? Numbers-wise in the Ohio Valley so far, um, talk in Peyton City, there's been a dozen to a few dozen, so we're waiting to find out about that. At Magnolia, we've seen about 25 to 30 kids come out and practice so far. And Tyler Consolidated, somewhere in the range between 20 and 30. So the rosters aren't as big is what we've seen in recent years. But also yesterday, I've noticed um, down in the southern portion of West Virginia, rosters have been increasing. Joe Bricado visited Buffalo yesterday. Brian Batman informed Joe Bricado that the roster has boosted exceptionally well, uh, up to 40. And that's a Class A program that hasn't made it to the state playoffs in quite a while. They made it last year, and I believe they went 5-1 and one or 6-1. and one. This might be a turning point for some schools in the Ohio Valley, but other schools across the state it seems to be increasing while the Ohio Valley seems to be decreasing. Success certainly seems to breed greater participation, and that's a fact we've seen time and time again. Uh, our statewide correspondent, Tara Malone, thank you so much for joining us this week, and we'll talk again next week. Thank you ever so much for having me, Eric. And that's our show this week. I'd like to thank our statewide correspondent, Taryn Malone, for joining us always. Remind you, if you haven't already done so, to like us on Facebook at the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. New episodes available every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. If you haven't caught up, if you want to go back to last season, you can do that as well. If you're listening to this one, chances are pretty good you've at least found episode one from a week ago, and we'll continue to do this every Wednesday for the duration of the high school football season. Coming next week, we'll take a look at some of our top games of 
of the year. The top five games we're looking at for this year. Also, I will have visited a couple high school football camps by this time next week, and so I'll have some news and notes from the front lines for you on the pod. I'm excited to share that and excited to get out and about and look at some different things and, and talk to some coaches and see how things are going here as we get into 2021. I've already heard from a few people, and I'm encouraged and excited to get out and hear from some more people and see some more action and some more high school football. So again, we're getting closer and closer to the year. I can feel it. I'm glad to have you here with us as well, supporting the pod for now season four of our high school football podcast. Again, thank you for listening this week. We will do it again next week. And until then, have a great rest of your week, everybody. This has been the Eric Little High School Football Podcast. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and vote in our weekly poll. Come back next week for another new episode. And thanks for listening.